Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Chelsea B. Coombs. And I'm Melissa Dunphy. Melissa, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. This is so cool. (laughs) Um, so, folks, Melissa is uh, a composer, among other things, uh, whose who's work I really admire. And I think I've talked about at least one of your pieces on here, um, the one about Tesla's pigeon, uh, yes. <laughs> infamously. Uh, but, Melissa, why don't you uh, tell your listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and why you are privy to some weird historical information. I see what you did there. I <laughs> so see. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm a composer based in Philadelphia. Uh, and so most of my life is writing music, primarily for choirs and uh, vocalists. And I write some opera and things like that. Uh, but half my life is taken up by a uh, what I like to term citizen archaeology. So uh, digging artifacts here in Philadelphia out of the ground, um, uh, mostly from the 18th century. So I'm here because uh, my specialty is digging privy pits, which are uh, is sort of a I guess a euphemistic term for toilets. <laughs> I spend half my life uh, cleaning human feces off of artifacts and figuring out what they are and uh, why they're here. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I, I'm tempted to just uh, ask you to go into the backstory of your Privy Pit adventures right now, but I think maybe we can save that yeah. for when you get into your, your facts. I have the um, short version, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um so, yeah, let's let's get into the show. On the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start with a fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, digging through poop holes, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Chelsea, what's your tease? Yes. So my fact this week is that a fear of clowns may actually stem from the makeup itself. 
oh my <laughs> yeah I know I'm you know I'm always scared when I put on makeup so you know I feel <laughs> I feel this you know anxiety here <laughs> all right um, I'm a little nervous, but also excited. Um, <laughs> you should be. I'm not particularly afraid of clown, but mm-hmm. then kind of like when I think about clowns too much, I start to get a little creeped out. I wouldn't list them on my fears. But right. Then yeah. When people talk about clowns being scary, I'm like, oh, they kind of are. For me, honestly, when I think of like, like mummers. Oh, mamas is scary. <laughs> Being from of Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Mamas are a whole thing. So it's I think very maybe strange. the reason I don't think of clouds as scary is that I'm like, yeah, but then the mummer clouds is a whole different thing. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> oh, gosh. Mummery. Uh, there's a big New Year's Day parade uh, of mamas. Um, it's it's like there's this whole weird history, but it's like it's, working yeah, class it's an people. Organization like like an elk lodge or a, a freemasons or something it's similar to that but then they have this parade where they, they dress up yeah <laughs> and you get really really drunk and everyone pees in the street you know i have to relate everything to toilet stuff because <laughs> that's why i'm here but yeah like everyone pees in the street and gets extremely extremely drunk and it's like working class dudes dressing in drag and uh, uh, like playing musical instruments and they have like a whole contest and uh, there's also um, like a weird race controversies that happen around the mummers every, it's very, very strange, look it up. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, oh, no. there are many elements of it that sound like it should be right up my alley, but altogether it just has a really kind of a menacing air. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm excited to talk about regular type clowns. Um, yes. My tease is that uh, I'm going to talk about some insects with a pee-related superpower. So yes. I kind of accidentally also sort of have a toilet fact. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Melissa, what's your tease? My tease is just a question, which is why is there a horse in the toilet? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. I've been wondering that. My wow. Life. I, I'm regretting my policy to never make guests go first. But um, Chelsea, you can you can have us. Uh, Chelsea, you can kick us off with with some clown uh, trauma. I yeah. am ready to be scared. <laughs> uh, we're hitting things um, off on the right note with some clownery. Um, you know, it's going to be great. So there is a lot of phobia research out there. And in the DSM-5, there are actually four of the more kind of common phobias that they include. So that includes animals, such as a fear of spiders and snakes, um, the natural environment, such as a fear of heights, blood injection injuries, such as a fear of needles, which is one that I definitely have, um, and then a situationally based fear, such as fear of airplanes. But there is also an other category, and that's where we find the fear of clowns or cholrophobia, which is a very weird way to say you would think it'd be like clownophobia or something. <laughs> but like apparently, you know, we're going with some Latin, you know, roots and everything Greek. here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So despite that kind of like cultural cachet that a fear of clowns holds and the fact that it's super common in pop culture to reference kind of like a fear of clowns, there actually hasn't been that much academic research into cholrophobia. Because they're scared and, of it. 
<laughs> yeah, I, true. honestly, yes. I think it's such a frightening prospect that people are like, I'm not touching it. This is not something <laughs> I, I'm interested in. I also in. wonder if, because, you know, so much of so much of what determines like what researchers decide to pursue is sort of like what people looking at the grant proposal will take seriously. And right. I wonder if even unconsciously there's like uh clowns are so inherently unserious that like we're <laughs> right. gonna focus on arachnophobia instead. Like spiders are Exactly. Not exactly. exactly. Spiders are like scientific, but like if my fellow researchers see that I'm researching clowns, then it's a short step toward like maybe I'm a clown of a researcher and shouldn't be right. taken seriously. Right, exactly. And interestingly enough, um, so this is a study that was in the International Journal of Mental Health. Um, but I think this kind of ties into how they got a grant proposal. They noted that Research that does exist has focused almost exclusively on the perceptions of clowns in hospital settings with virtually no consideration of the prevalence of chlorophobia in community samples. So, uh. you know, they're like, oh, well, we need to find out if the clowns are really scaring the children. You know, I think that's that's a lot of it there. Um, so speaking of that, in pediatric wards of hospitals, there's often something called clown therapy, which is no, not what my um, therapist calls my session. <laughs> but it's supposed to lighten the mood and decrease people's negative emotions that occur in hospitals. And there's been a lot of research on whether this actually works or not. But there are always cases in which it very much doesn't, with kids refusing to see clowns or crying or showing anxiety when they saw them. In one 2007 study, one healthcare worker said, I think the clown doctors are wonderful at bringing a little light relief to some scared patients and parents. However, I'm terrified of them. Don't know why, but always have been. <laughs> um, and honestly, I can relate to that. Uh, so <laughs> these scientists decided to actually examine the fear of clowns in an international population with the appropriately named Fear of Clowns Questionnaire, which was adapted from the Fear of Spiders Questionnaire. Um, which I'm really glad that that exists. Like both of those things, you know, that it's a very specific thing that you want to make sure that you question people about. <laughs> um, so the survey questions included a rating system in which people would say how likely they were to have a certain reaction. Like I would do anything to avoid a clown. It would take me a long time to get a clown encounter out of my mind. If I saw a clown, I would be afraid of it. And if I saw a clown, I would feel very panicky. Um, and I was wondering, on a scale of like one to seven, like how likely are you to not be able to get a clown encounter out of your mind? Can can either of you give us? I think it it's highly dependent on the clown. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, that's understandable. Yeah. I, I also feel like it's highly dependent on, you know, whether you've... Um, read or watched any media from Stephen King's It. <laughs> yes, right, R exactly. R for me, personally, I, when I yeah. watched the Tim Curry, Stephen King It miniseries uh. on TV mm -hmm. uh, when I was a kid, that um, I think that did a number on me. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, no, I feel like a lot of these like fears are always kind of based in like what you were exposed to as a child. So, you know, getting exposed to It early is a yeah, real problem. Yeah, yeah. Actually, when I was watching that at home as a kid, um, this is a horrible traumatic story, but in the middle of oh, no. watching that miniseries as a kid, the doorbell rang and someone ra had run over my cat. 
Oh my and god! And then come to the door. Yeah, no, true story. I rang the doorbell and was like, "I'm so sorry." I mean, it's kind of amazing that they stopped, but they said, "You know, right? Uh, we've just run over a cat. My cat died in the middle of it." So I always have this memory now of like Stephen King's "It will kill your na- your household pet." <laughs> well, so- I think that's I think that's Pet Cemetery, but like you know, a very similar. Concept. It's all confused in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Well, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. That might be partially why you are a little bit afraid. I just, of I just don't like them. I'm not afraid of them. They're a harbinger okay. of doom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Honestly, they really are. I, for me, it's definitely like quite context dependent. Like, mm-hmm. if I were at uh, like an acrobatics show, right, and someone right. came out in clown makeup and did some clowning, I don't think I would find that at all unsettling. Right. And like, if I was on right. the subway and someone was in a clown costume, I'd be like more likely to find them unsettling than someone not in a clown costume. But if right. they were just acting like a chill person going to a gig, I don't think I'd be unsettled. But then, like, someone doing something unsettling. Or in an unexpected place while dressed as a cloud, that is very That's upsetting. terrifying. Something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Something exactly. is very, very wrong. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, I, I definitely get that. My my grandparents' neighbor was actually a clown and she was she was always very nice. So, you know, I don't really have too much of a fear of clowns except for that kind of like media based phobia, but yeah, it's it's very interesting how our ch- childhoods can really influence what we think about them. Totally. So in this study, there were 927 participants who willingly went through the questionnaire about clowns. Um, 27% said they had a fear of clowns, with 5% saying they were extremely afraid of clowns. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because more women reported that they were afraid of clowns and they had a more extreme fear of clowns than men did which actually follows a similar pattern in phobias just generally. More women have phobias than men do. Um, And there's research out there that kind of looks into why that is, but it's not really a settled kind of debate there. But when they dove deeper into why people were afraid of clowns, most people actually didn't say it was because they had a bad experience with a clown. Mm -hmm. What's that Simpsons line? A clown killed my dad. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I'm afraid of Krusty the Clown for sure. Like, you know, Sideshow Bob, all of it is a real problem. Uh, And even more interestingly, negative portrayals of clowns in pop culture, like we were just talking about with in the movie It, were a much stronger contributing factor. But the strongest factor the researchers found was that a clown's makeup keeps people guessing at what their actual intentions are. So they have this permanently happy face, but that's really concealing whether that person is angry or upset Mm. or sad. So the authors believe that being unable to know what a clown is really thinking or what they might do might put us on edge. So it's not necessarily like the pop cultural stuff that definitely affects it, I think. But these researchers say it's because, you know, we look to people's faces to know, like, what intentions they have. Like, what are they going to do next? Should I be afraid of this person or this animal, et cetera? But clowns are going to keep you guessing with, Hmm. uh, you know, the happy face they put on. Um, And finally, I just really love this part in the discussion um, that I think also comes back to that, like, why did we do this study and why did we get money for it? 
The use of medical clowns or clown therapy necessitates further evaluation in the pediatric hospital environment so that unnecessary anxiety and fear can be avoided. And thank you for saying that, (laughs) researchers. Um, I would agree. You know, we really shouldn't be putting clowns in environments that they shouldn't be in. So, you know. I wonder if people who are afraid of clowns are also more likely to be afraid of masks. Yes, oh, yeah. that is that is actually part of it. So within the specific kind of like DSM-5, like other category, it's like a costumes and mask phobia that clown phobia kind of folds into. So it's it's very interesting. Yeah, that, it's like yeah. that uncanny thing. I also feel mm-hmm. like this is maybe sort of awful, but, you know, when people get a lot of Botox so that their faces don't have expressions on them right. and you can yeah. tell. Um, and, you know, there's a whole conversation to be had about Hollywood actresses, particularly, um, you know, feeling the pressure to get Botox because right. we're all afraid of aging, which is another mm-hmm. whole phobia debate, I suppose. But like it right. enters that kind of uncanny valley territory yeah. where you're not mm-hmm. really sure what their emotion is anymore. <laughs> right. And I think that's part of kind of like that's, you know, why people kind of look at people who may have had like a lot of plastic surgery and they're like oh well that's like really weird but I think a lot of it stems from I don't really know what they're feeling right now because they're not having typical kind of like facial expressions that you would expect etc etc so it's really interesting how much like being able to see a person's face really affects like how you interact with them and kind of you know even just like what you think of that person just generally it's yeah you know what they kind of of you yeah don't judge a book by its cover though right like (laughs) don't be rude about someone who has botox face right (laughs) true very true i am yeah i mean so a while back when we were just saying i talked about um studies on the uncanny valley which is of course related and i think it's so interesting like how primed our brains are to be like something is slightly off and uh-huh. i'm gonna make it your whole body's problem yes. <laughs> like, yep <laughs> totally <laughs> i don't know what the correct response is here but i know i should be responding right exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> well um consider me creeped out for yes. sure Sorry, I apologize to you and all listeners who may um, deal with cholerophobia. Um, sorry to trigger you. If if you um, didn't before, maybe now you do. Um, yeah. I am very glad that researchers are are taking a closer look into the hospital thing because it's so great to be doing things to like diffuse anxiety in kids who have to be in the hospital. And I so don't want a kid to have a panic attack because a cloud showed up in their <laughs> hospital room right. uh, in an unexpected fashion. So I'm glad they're they're digging a little deeper into that, that practice. I agree. <laughs> I agree. God bless them. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Okay, we're back. And um, I'm going to talk about uh, insects with a pea-related superpower. Um, this is from uh, a study from February uh, and I've seen it around a bit and I was like, I think this is going to be awesome. And sure enough, uh, I loved every second. So I'm excited to share with you all. So glassy winged sharpshooters, um, they are not exactly the most lovable bugs, however you feel about bugs in general. Uh, they've got these like very wiggly abdomens um, that they use to make their whole body vibrate like a little noise maker so that they can communicate when it's time to mate. Um, they're, they've got very bulbous eyes and they have these like red veined wings. They're just, they're not very cute. Um, they're also considered pests. So when they and other sharpshooters feed off of grapevines, they leave behind a bacterium called Xylella fastidiosa. Um, and that causes leaves to like yellow and wither and die uh, in a condition known as Pierce's disease. Uh, and that plague can wipe out more than half of a vineyard's vines in, in an outbreak. And it's estimated to cost $100 million in lost grapevines and mitigation efforts in California alone hmm. uh, every year, or at least that was the estimate in, I want to say, 2014. Um, and unlike the blue-green sharpshooter, which tends to spread the disease most in Napa and Sonoma counties uh, and along the coast, uh, which is native to that area, the glassy-winged sharpshooter is also invasive. Uh, so it currently causes a bunch of trouble in Southern California, but it likely came over from the southeastern U.S. in the 1990s, probably like on some nursery plants, the way most invasive bugs get around. Um, so... They, they pose a problem and they're not even supposed to be there. <laughs> and so scientists are always looking at, at ways to better understand them uh, so that they can improve mitigation efforts. But in addition to posing a threat to the wine industry, glassy-winged sharpshooters also pose a more immediate threat to any humans who happen to pass by them. Um, and that threat is being sprayed with a constant mist of bug urine. Delightful. Um, yeah. <laughs> So sharpshooters have these little straw-like mouth parts um, that they stick into a grapevine xylem, uh, which is the tissue that plants use to carry water, minerals, and sugars uh, through from the roots up through the rest of the plant. And that liquid diet is pretty diffuse uh, from a nutritional perspective. Uh, the researchers compared it to living off of diet lemonade, which um, oh. sounds pretty awful. Um, and that means that uh, a bug can sometimes have to take in 300 times its weight in sap every day 
uh, just to get what they need to survive from a nutritional standpoint. Uh, and what goes in must come out. So that means they also uh, pee 300 times their weight every day. Um, wow. Which is a lot. That's uh, frightening. Yeah. yeah. Humans, I mean, obviously, I know that number is obviously a lot. You don't really need uh, context to know it's a lot. But just so you understand how bananas that is, um, humans tend to uh, expel something like one fortieth of their body weight every day. Uh, wow. <laughs> so it's a lot more. <laughs> and I want to pause just to make it clear that these emissions, um, which are sometimes called leaphopper rain, uh, can, oh, no. <laughs> can look like rain. <laughs> like um, oh. an infested tree will just have like a constant drizzle <laughs> coming down from it. Um, and I've seen videos from researchers showing like what looks like people hurrying through like a light sun shower. And it's all bug pee. It's, it's just bug pee. It's a different um, kind of sun shower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, folks might remember uh, that on a previous episode of Weirdest Thing, I talked about um, some honeymakers uh, in Philadelphia, actually, who use uh, similar emissions from uh, spotted red lanternflies, uh, which are, of course, an invasive scourge, uh, to create honey that has like a unique uh, flavor to it. This excreta, which is like a combination poop pee that a lot of bugs mm-hmm. make, is known as honeydew. Um, and like, it's pretty innocuous. It's it's basically sugary water. Okay. Um, but, right. so yeah, don't, please, please don't be too grossed out by the idea that you may uh, get a, get a spritz from a sharpshooter bug. But uh, still, it's certainly, um, it's, it's certainly evocative. Uh <laughs> Wow. Should we be keeping our mouths very tightly closed when we go through one of these sun showers or is it actually a delicacy? (laughs) I guess it depends on who you ask. Um, But there's also something really special about a sharpshooter's pee. Um, So first of all, their close relatives, cicadas, also drink tons of sap uh, to satiate themselves. But those larger bugs let out pee in a stream like many animals do. Uh, researchers from the Georgia Institute of Technology got curious about the fact that sharpshooters, though they do have to pee like a lot, um, let it out one drop at a time. Uh, And as it turns out, their drop by drop method actually uses less energy than pushing out a steady stream. This study like took like cat scans of, of bugs to figure this out. Um, I, I love science. Uh, yeah. So basically like, again, back to that, uh, diet lemonade (laughs) comparison. Imagine if you had to spend, uh, as much energy as it would take to like get your daily nutritional needs from that kind of low nutrient liquid, uh, you wouldn't have any energy to waste peeing. You, You really need the most efficient pee possible. Um, and that's what this bug does. And it's all thanks to something called an anal stylus um, or, as the researchers involved in the study called it, a butt flicker. So Those are both excellent names for metal bands. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's my new band, Anal Stylus. Yeah. <laughs> 
check out our EP, Butt Flicker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Butt um, Flicker is our first EP. Yeah. <laughs> So this little stylist, the little butt flicker, uh, it's just like, you know, a little, um, it almost looks like a little stinger off the back of the bug, though that's not what it is. Uh, And it rotates back when the insect is ready to go. uh, And that provides room for them to squeeze out a little droplet of liquid. Uh, Scientific American likened it to a balloon growing out of an air pump, um, which I think is spot on. Unexpected clown tie-in, I think of it. Um, True. (laughs) And so once that droplet has swelled and formed, um, the stylus then rotates back even further and it launches the droplet like a flipper on a pinball machine. Um, It's effectively uh, a spring and lever like a catapult and it can accelerate more than 40 G's, which is 10 times higher than the fastest sports cars. So already very impressive. Wow. Um, Uh And... It gets even better. So when the researchers, uh, who, by the way, were figuring all this out with like high speed, high res cameras looking at, you know, dozens of peeing insects, when they measured the speed of the droplets and the styluses themselves, they found that the liquid actually moved 1.4 times faster through the air than the stylus flicked them. Uh, So they think that this is the first natural example of something called super propulsion which is this idea that's um, only been demonstrated in synthetic systems before where an elastic projectile gets an energy boost thanks to the timing of its launch. Um, sort of like mm. a diver doing like a perfectly timed jump off a springboard that like helps them optimally rocket into the air. Uh, basically, it's like this thing is traveling faster than the launcher that emits it. Uh, and this is the first time we've seen that in like an animal. It turns out that the stylus compresses the droplets, uh, which allows the water to store energy in the form of surface tension. So basically water molecules inside a droplet really want to stick to each other more than they want to stick to like anything else they Mm -hmm. come into contact with. So the surface of the drop acts like a flexible membrane. It'll spring back into the smallest possible area to keep those molecules close together. So it's kind of elasticy, And with the right timing, that can give you a super-powered launch. Um, and I uh, I will include a video to this at popside.com slash weird. Um, so when are we going to weaponize this into like super soakers that launch water balloons at our siblings <laughs> or whatever? So yeah. That's a great question. And the researchers hope soon. Um, <laughs> yeah, they... They think that, you know, studying the mechanics of, of these like sharpshooting whizzes uh, could help us develop more super propulsion in mechanical devices. Um, for example, uh, so like something like Apple Watch's water lock, which already works to kind of like push water out of a device. Um, the researchers are saying, you know, we could kind of harness these principles to make something like that more effective by having it like truly shoot the water off of the electronic components. Uh, or you could design like a nozzle or a spray bottle or a water gun uh, that's like, more efficient at, you know, sort of launching the liquid away so that stuff doesn't get uh, stuck to the nozzle or, uh, as the case may be, so that it more effectively uh, hits your sibling just while you're yeah. having uh, <laughs> while you're having fights in the yard. Um And yeah, they were able to like reverse engineer the phenomenon using vibration from speakers to get water droplets to spring up at high speeds. So they've already taken steps to sort of like apply this to, uh, you know, human devices. 
And yeah, they're like, this is a great example of uh, curiosity driven science uh, Mm -hmm. really having impacts you can't possibly imagine when you're starting out. Um, This started when one of the senior study authors, uh, Saad Bamla, uh, who's a biophysicist at the Georgia Institute of Technology, uh, just like saw some of the insects and was like, huh. There's a quote from him uh, in Live Science saying, I saw these insects peeing once and fell in love. And I really adore that. Um, That's great. A love story. A modern love (laughs) story for the ages. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) This is much better than the research I did with grasshoppers, where essentially I was like a grasshopper pornographer. I had to look at like so many videos of these freaking grasshoppers like mating. (laughs) And like, you know, they also peed all over the place, but I just don't think it was as exciting as this. (laughs) We have so much to learn from insect yeah. peeing capabilities. It's, it's true. <laughs> well, and just to like underline how impressive this mechanism is. Um, so thinking about like the relative size of these creatures and the droplets they're flinging and like the viscosity and the speed of the droplets. Uh, one of the press releases about this uh, said, imagine you had a beach ball sized glob of maple syrup and you were trying to get that unstuck from your hand. That's uh-huh. that's what they're doing at scale. Wow. So um, pretty incredible stuff. Yeah. And all in the name of um, just pee it as much as possible <laughs> without doing too much work. Um But yeah, I love this study, especially because, uh, you know, like the study author said, it was purely driven by like curiosity and uh, it could have like actually very cool, um, even commercial uh, applications. So Uh support basic research and agreed bug pee research. And you never know. Okay, cool. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to find out why there's a horse in the toilet. Okay, we're back. Uh, Melissa, yeah, tell us about your privy pit fact. Okay, um, I should give a little background as yeah, to actually why I'm even talking about. Please privies. tell tell <laughs> folks who have not uh, listened to your podcast. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, which you should also tell our, our listeners about. Yeah, uh, but please tell us why why privy pits. Okay, so uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I am in fact a composer, um, and uh, in around cast your mind back to 2014 to 2016, I was finishing my PhD in music composition at the University of Pennsylvania, but simultaneously, uh, and I'm going to drop a lot of. WTF things in this next (laughs) sentence, which I'm not going to explain in detail, because if you want the detailed version, you can go listen to my podcast, which is called The Bog House, B-O-G-H-O-U-S-E, wherever you get podcasts, blah de blah But um, around the same period, my husband Matt and I uh, bought a magic theater from a pedophile here in Philadelphia and accidentally discovered two archaeological features underneath which turned out to be privy pits or toilet pits from the 18th century filled with artifacts from around the period of the Revolutionary War. 
Um, and uh, we, as I like to tell people, you know, um, if you want to become an expert in a topic that you don't know a whole lot about, a really efficient way of doing this is to be getting a doctorate in a completely different <laughs> subject. Because if mm -hmm. there's some, if there's one thing that doctoral candidates love doing, it's procrastinating the actual research and work that they're supposed to be doing by diving into a rabbit hole or poop hole, as the case may be, uh, <laughs> about something completely different. My poor advisor, I mean, he retired <laughs> after I finished my PhD, and I swear part of it was that I just kept coming into my meetings with him, and he'd say, what work have you done? And I'd say, look at all of this work, and he'd say, that has absolutely nothing to do with what you're supposed to be doing. Um, <laughs> it's the same with writing a book. Um, if, if you will write more than you have ever had the creative energy to write in your life uh, when you have a contract to write a book and it's just that none of what you write will actually be for the book that you're not getting paid all. to write. Yes, That's my 100%. <laughs> my PhD took two full years longer than I meant to take because I, instead of writing music and doing musical research, I was lovingly cleaning each artifact that came out of the archaeological features under my home and then doing a ton of historical research, trying to figure out what these objects were, what their context was, who were the people likely to have put this stuff under our house um, and why? Why is this stuff in our privy? Um, so among the objects that we found, among the artifacts that we found were thousands of pieces of ceramic, thousands of plates and bowls and pots and uh, glass bottles as well. Uh, also animal bones. We found a ton of animal huh. bones, uh, mostly animal bones that had clearly gone through the cooking process. Like you could see knife marks on them, you could see chop marks on soup bones and things like that. Um, but one of our sort of, you know, most uh, I sort of visually impressive finds, I guess you could say, is we started pulling out pieces of a whole horse that was down in the privy, uh, a whole horse jaw. We have the entire lower jaw of a horse. Um, and, uh, you know, it sort of set us out on this path of wondering, <laughs> why do you put a horse in the toilet? Like, what is going on right. here? Why does that what, happen? How many things have to go wrong in your life for you to find yourself putting a horse in the what, toilet? Yeah, it's just the process of like, put a, put a horse down the toilet. And it all kind of relates back to something that we don't have to think about a whole lot in the 21st century, which is where does all the poop and trash go in our mm, lives? Right. You know, um, in the 18th century, nobody, well, hardly anybody has plumbing. And we cer they certainly didn't have trash collection where we can just stick stuff out on the sidewalk and nice people come and take it away forever and it's gone. Uh, and instead, they had to figure out what to do with all of the piles of trash that they generated in their everyday lives. And a lot of it went down the toilet. Uh, I will talk a little bit about, you know, what what happened to the trash that went down the toilet as well. There was a job, which I guess you could equate to, to um, to modern day garbage men, which is night soil men, which is a whole other thing that I'm going to talk about in a second. But there's this thing where, you know, around about this time, of course, we don't have cars. Everybody has horses to get around. What do you do when your horses die? 
is a big question because if there are a lot of horses around, you know, some of them are going to come to the end of their lives and some of them are going to die. Um, what do you do with a dead horse? <laughs> yeah, in a city, I would say that's a real problem. <laughs> right. You know, you could, I mean, some people do eat horses and, and that's fine. But also some, you know, this horse jaw that we have that was in our toilet was almost certainly from quite an elderly horse. Mm. You can see oh. from the way that the teeth mm-hmm. are ground down that the horse was quite old. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some services that would take your horse away to turn into glue or uh, gelatin or, you know, something like that. But if mm-hmm. if the horse guys, I don't know, took a couple weeks off or you, you, you're left with this rotting carcass of a horse and... Um, it smells pretty bad, and so does your toilet. So why not combine the two worst <laughs> <Solidate>. smells <laughs> and end up, you know, throwing your entire horse down the toilet with all of the poop that you put down there too? Um, my husband actually did some research where um, um, there's a line of thinking among some historians that cars came along at a pretty fortuitous time because if it weren't for the modern day automobile doing away with the need for horses everywhere, there would just be this glut of dead horses <laughs> that cities oh, would God. have to deal with because there were so many horses yeah. around everywhere in the cities. You know, you can't bury a dead horse. They're really big, as it turns yeah, out. Yeah, right. So it's a lot to get a, get rid of. So I do sort of imagine, you know, the people who lived in our house being like, oh, my God, we have to get rid of this dead horse and the horse guys uh, have taken the week off. Just chop it up and stick it in the toilet and forget about it. <laughs> And then can you imagine going to the bathroom with a with a horse head? Stick, it's, really, di- it's awful, right? Yeah. It's a real surprise. And, yes. Which, you know, I, I've now, in the course of um, all of these wild things that have happened to me since becoming a citizen archaeologist, um, I think become probably Philadelphia's preeminent public expert on 18th century uh, toilet and toilet habits. and things. <laughs> Things that went down the toilet. Um, I mean, one of the questions that I uh, also had to ask when I was excavating thousands of, of artifacts from the 18th century uh, was why are why is there so much stuff down the toilet, particularly all of these ceramic objects that we have? Um, mm-hmm. Because initially people would say, well, of course, you would put trash down the toilet. But I always ask the question, you know, but why so much? Like, how many plates have you broken in your entire life? Right. Um, right. And it turns out it's another weird little factoid that I never thought about until I entered this weird world of archaeology. When you move house right now, what do you do with all of your breakables in your kitchen? Like, how do you how do you pack them up and take them to your new home? Yeah, you got to put them in newspaper or I mm-hmm. mean what I do is I I pack all my clothes and towels in the same box oh that's a good plate. idea that's a great uh, hat which <laughs> makes for a pretty you know chaotic garbage goblin unpacking <laughs> process but does mean I don't have a producer but it's true like you do uh, you you need some stuff to keep them from breaking. You do. Right. And uh, back in the 18th century, there are no cardboard boxes. There's mm, no right. bubble wrap. The newspaper is really expensive, actually. You know, you wouldn't just have right. tons of spare paper that you could pack everything in neatly. So the general um, 
a process for moving house was not to take any of that stuff with you, at least the cheap stuff. You mm. would just throw your entire kitchen's worth of breakables into your toilet uh, and it's then like move out weekend at NYU. Right. Like, yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. It made me, it makes me think of what we now do with sort of modern Ikea furniture, mm. which I right. don't tend to take that with me. You just leave it out on the sidewalk for some, you know, handy garbage picker to take. And then at your new location, you go to the local Ikea and buy a bunch of flat packed furniture and unpack that into your new home. Similarly, in the 18th century, there were sort of potters in your neighborhood that yeah. you could buy new stuff from new plates and mm-hmm. bowls and, and platters and things like that. So you would, yeah, throw all of your stuff in, go to your new home on the cobblestone streets with the wagons that had no suspension where all of your stuff would break if you tried to take it with you. And then at your new location, you would find the local potter on your block and have them or, uh, make you a whole bunch of new kitchen stuff. So that is the reason why in our privy, we found thousands of pots. Um, many of them clearly were whole when they went in. We're not sort of smashed in a drunken stupor or you know <laughs> broken by by butterfingered you know house servants or anything like that, but just thrown down in the privy. Um, it, disposable material culture is not unique to right. our society. It's been going on for a very long time. But uh, the beautiful thing is that all of that trash, which was stuff that nobody cared about in the 18th century, is now stuff that I am spending half my life uh, putting together and researching and lovingly displaying all over my home and uh, using it to sort of connect to experts all over the world and, you know, have entered this whole new world of being really interested in what ordinary people in the 18th century used in their everyday lives. It's been a really exciting journey. (laughs) That's That's super cool. cool. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, like, it's, I've always wanted to, like, live in, like, an older house. And you know how, like, you'd watch an HGTV show or whatever, and they're, we found this letter behind this panel Uh in the wall. But it's like, no, I just have a giant crap pit. Yeah. And I found, you know, amazing finds. I love that. Yeah. People, I mean, I never stopped to think about this before I embarked on this weird accidental journey, which is that if you live in a city on the east coast of the United States that has been settled for a long time, the ground is full of these shafts, which essentially become time capsules to an earlier period. Um, They're everywhere. They really are everywhere around Philadelphia. They're in New Uh York a whole ton as well, and even down to cities in the South. Um, And uh, yeah, we just got really lucky in that um, our property was uh, not particularly developed for the last century or so. So our two toilet pits that are underneath our building were pretty much untouched during that whole period. Wow. Uh, so yes, I, w- we entered this whole world of archaeology, um, which can be kind of controversial sometimes, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There is a view among some archaeologists that we being untrained archaeologists uh, should not be excavating these privies that uh, there's actually, uh, I think the term is privy pirates or looters who go around digging privies looking for treasure. 
But ah. from our perspective, I'm like, we're not looking for treasure. We're just really curious. It's that curiosity thing again. Um, right. And I have, you know, enough enough, I guess, academic training to be doing as much research as I possibly can on the most uh, responsible way to look at these artifacts and to learn about these artifacts. And so um, luckily the professional archaeologists have not come for me. They've actually been very supportive. <laughs> no, I, I think it's it's so clear, um, you know, listening to you talk and, and listening to your podcast that like you really care about being like stewards of these culturally significant piles of crap that yeah. you unexpectedly <laughs> and like you could have just like kind of you know uh slight spoiler for your podcast you could have just like filled in the foundation you wanted to fill in or whatever you were doing it there and moved on with right. your life yeah um so uh, I think it's really cool instead we went on this big journey but you know it's like a question for all of us uh including your listeners which is you know um think in America, we have a tendency to, when we uh, buy a house or move yeah. into a new property, to not really think too hard about all the people who've lived in that space before us. You know, I don't know whether this is an artifact of colonialism in some ways, where we don't really want to think about how the land became our land. Totally. Um, but I think that there's something really valuable in exploring who lived here before. How did this land come to be my land it gives you this sense of responsibility uh in two different areas one is you know thinking about that cultural stewardship of you know well how how do i fit in historically into this picture mm -hmm. but also it's really made me think about my own env environmental impact on the world mm. as well yeah. you know what are the things that i'm leaving around for future archaeologists Totally. Um, and as I researched the kinds of people who lived on my property, which has been a really fascinating study, you know, I've been lucky enough, um, Philadelphia being a city of journalists and lawyers and Quakers and the kinds of people who write everything down, we've been able to uh -huh. find out names and biographies and learn all about the people who've lived in this property before us. Um, and in many cases, I've been sort of judging them for, oh, I don't know, <laughs> having slaves and having sure. arguments with... Fair enough. Yeah, you know, just, just, you know, and but it makes me wonder... What will future generations judge me for uh, if anybody uh, uh, cares to, you know, discover what I've left behind, you know? Yeah. Too many pairs of shoes. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. That's, that is like extremely profound and something I think we should all spend more time using on. It's funny when you were uh, at the beginning, when you were talking about, you know, sort of the the like menacing nature of like throwing a horse down the toilet and how bizarre <laughs> it is that like you just lived with the horse being in your toilet because that was the best uh, scenario. There is something I think like kind of awful about how uh, disconnected we now are all are from our trash mm -hmm, um, right not kind of awful like definitely awful and i know this is not like a, a this is not like a new hot take many uh many environmental researchers uh and ecologists and uh refuse experts have have been saying this for many years but like yeah the actually it was way uh like more responsible 
for people to just have to deal with the horse being in their toilet. Because like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's your horse mm-hmm. that you like that. That horse is part of your carbon footprint. Yes. So it's it your should horse. be rotting in your toilet. Yes. And it's your poop. <laughs> as well like you have to think about where your poop goes and what that's doing to the earth because it's doing it to your earth as opposed to the you know the river or the ocean or the sewage treatment plant outside of the city it's like right there and you have to go to the toilet above it all the time Mm -hmm. I, i have to i think about this constantly actually when thinking about privy research and what it was like going to the toilet in the 18th century uh one a of real other, adventure i bet i mean can you imagine <laughs> the, the other artifact that we find a ton down privies um are pipes pipes and pipe mm. stems so tobacco pipes oh yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, Smoking we dug on the a privy. Yes, well, we dug a privy next door. It was like quite. It was sort of fascinating. There were maybe two dozen pipes that were all by the same maker, and uh, were sort of intact almost. So I'm imagining, you know, there's some probably a man, uh, but who knows, who only liked one type of pipe, but seemed to smoke them almost very regularly on the toilet. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I've tried smoking a pipe. It's it to me is not the most pleasant thing, and you know, tobacco <laughs> use certainly has been demonized in our society quite a lot, but. Going to the toilet in the 18th century with all of those rotting horse plus poop plus, you know, diseased bacteria smells, I think I would have taken up pipe smoking on the toilet pretty seriously. You need some stronger vapors, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Not to mention the fact that some of these toilets were communal. Mm. So there, you know, there were big enough that you would have more than one sort of hole and neighbors would congregate in these outhouses and sit next to each other while wow. pooping. Um, which, this yeah, is why Philadelphia has such a unique neighborly bond. It's a, <laughs> right. it's a, city it's a vibe you don't find love. anywhere else. <laughs> the brotherly love of sharing, sharing a toilet bench. I can't even um, poop next to my husband, let alone like... Yeah, I, I don't think most people get it. My neighbor it's across the street. It's become a very private thing. But yeah, it's funny to think about like how how um recently that has become like a private matter yeah (laughs) right (laughs) i would i would definitely also be smoking a pipe like i would try to buy tobacco that had the most smoke that came out of it create a little yeah just in case you're sitting on the toilet having your usual toilet time and suddenly your neighbor from across the street (laughs) opens the door and is like oh hi melissa you here too and then sits down next to you and starts pooping as well (laughs) i would immediately be like smoking up a storm to create just a little screen the like meme of like you know uh guys at a urinal and like someone taking the one next to them even though there are like other ones open i feel like that is like a hundred times more like yeah that neighbor who always sits right down next to you at the privy even when the whole right. bench is empty <laughs> yep yeah <laughs> terrible vibes um i feel like uh sort of like like somewhere like a, a marie kondo or a like swedish death cleaning book i feel like there could be a book that's like live your life like everything has to go down your privy pit you yes know? 
live your life like that horse is gonna stay in your toilet oh yes or live your life like you have the job of being a night soil man which is you know the other side of privies is that um back in the day there was a job night soil man which is where people came to privies to clean them out when they got too disgusting so uh you know the horse has been down there a really long time and you've dumped so many ceramics down the toilet that it's starting to pile up in there and not degrade biodegrade the correct way so i i often think of this as sort of the inverse and more disgusting form of chimney sweeps Mm. so they would lower a small person maybe even a child down in to the privy pit with a bucket and pull buckets of sewage and trash out of the privy and then load them on the world's foulest smelling wagon and then sell that sewage as fertilizer to farms and areas that would take the sewage. Um, In England, actually, there are lots of land which were privy privy dumps essentially places that Uh. the knights or men men would come and and offload the sewage and on some of the houses that have been built on these properties in their their gardens are full of pottery sherds little bits of artifacts that came out of other people's privies with the night soil, night soil being the, you know, euphemistic term for the poop that went down into the toilet. Uh, and yeah, you can you can sort of do small archaeological excavations on these sites and guess where the privy, the, the night soil came from. But I just often think about, you know, what a job that must have been. Yeah. How would you do that without, like, I don't know, like passing out from the smell? <laughs> I guess... You know, on the bright side, everything smelled bad everywhere all the time. That's true. So, I, I think they were probably still, well paid, maybe, yeah. yeah, like for what they did. Um, but if you can, you know, I suppose it's like garbage, garbage collectors as well. You know, right? Mm-hmm. When you or septic tank, right? You know, people who take the stuff out of septic tanks now, right? Right. For most of us, we don't have to think about where that goes, but you know. Live your life like you had to be your own night soul man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the world would be a, a much better place if we all um if we all imagined that one day we might have to be our own poop smith, you know. Yeah. Um, poopsmith, yeah. I like that. Yeah. I'm just shoving my IKEA cabinets down the toilet from now on. Oh, that would be like a way. you know. <laughs> I'm I'm tired of having to drag it all the way down, you know. I'm just gonna flush it this time. Just chip it. And, and I'm gonna say it. it's your fault. Oh sure. Okay. No worries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh that was so uh good. Uh what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? I for me it was the preview. It's got to be the toilet uh, yeah, really? for me. Yeah, it's got to be the toilet it for me. It was such a ride. Um, you said that to all your privy ticket guests, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on. This was wonderful. Um, remind listeners what your podcast is and you know where else they can find you. Yes, you can find uh, my podcast. You can Google Boghouse, a B-O-G-H-O-U-S-E. It's an 18th century term for the toilet. Uh, and we're available wherever you find podcasts. I swear a lot more on my podcast than I did on this one. Uh, as you can 
perhaps tell from my accent I'm originally Australian and for Australian swearing is like breathing so maybe don't <laughs> don't listen with your toddlers in the car if you don't want them to pick up f-bombs but if you just want uh, to hear me um, get very very excited about 18th century history and uh, archaeological artifacts um, tune in <laughs> <laughs> who wouldn't I mean it's so exciting <laughs> The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Faltman, along with Jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.